Welcome to Mindspace Minimal. We're your hosts, Daniel Ryan and Jessica Yatrovsky. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We hope you enjoy this episode. And today we're talking about the home and the body. In exploring that, we're talking about mindset, minimalism, lifestyle, and food, the rooms that we have inside of ourselves and outside of ourselves, the nature of clutter and piles, disorder and chaos at home, and then, of course, the opposite, order and organization, and then air and light and time and space, those elements, which is also the name of a Bukowski poem that I like very much. So that having been said, how are you doing, Jessica? I'm doing good. We just had a little check-in breathing we moment sure did. before, we sure did. Yeah. so I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. And just off the top of my head, thinking about the home and the body, Please. sitting in my closet the other day and I was thinking, I was actually on the phone, I was talking to a girlfriend and we were talking about how much effort we put into our self, mm-hmm. our self-care, our actual bodies, mm-hmm. and not in a way where this is about, you know, makeup and getting dressed and and sort of more um, vanity-based things, but more of like taking care of the body. And we were sort of complaining like, oh, it takes so much maintenance. It takes so much to live and exist. But (laughs) I was thinking to myself that my home is my body and our, our houses can burn down. We can lose all of our possessions. And mm-hmm. so, you know, why not just throw all of our fucking money into our bodies? I mean, really, that's kind of where I'm at now in yeah. my life. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, of course. I mean, it's pretty impossible to argue with. I mean, it's rather common sense. The, the barely a metaphor that the home is, of course, the body and that, you know, we, we take it with us throughout our lives. In psychology, there's this idea, which I, I'm extremely fond of as, an, as a hypnotherapist and trained to watch nonverbals in a way that I think this is absolutely true, that the subconscious mind is the body and the body is the subconscious mind and that nonverbal communication is ultimately always speaking for what we're unconsciously carrying or feeling or expressing to ourselves or, you know, keeping in the background even or whatever we think we're keeping in the background. Yeah, all of that as a way of saying, uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, I have a story that I wanted to tell about my dad today relating to inherited memory in the body, ancestral memory in the body, and and how we carry that, and and to reference a couple of great thinkers on that subject. Bessel van van der Kolk comes to mind right away in his book, The Body Keeps the Score. Before I do that, Anything else that you wanted to to say or, or that you want to explore before, you know, I, I tell this long-winded story about my dad? No, I just want to, like, get some popcorn and like, <laughs> get into this story because you started telling me earlier. And I was like, ah. Yeah. So my father, uh, Jeffrey Ryan, rest in peace, passed away in 2011 at the age of 70. Um, he was a fascinating man with a fascinating life story that uh, is far more interesting than mine that begins somewhat in tragedy my dad was an orphan who was raised in catholic orphanages in the 1940s outside of boston around dorchester massachusetts 
We have the story pretty well documented in adoption records that my mom has since retrieved in the last couple of years. He was given away and, and taken back a few times as an infant, as a baby, by uh, his mother, a woman named Elaine Masalom, M-A-S-S-E-L-O-M, who was a Syrian Catholic immigrant, a daughter, the daughter of uh, a Syrian Catholic immigrant himself. I think it, my great-grandfather, I think his name was Maitri, if I'm remembering correctly. I don't have the records in front of me at this moment. But all this getting back to my dad as an infant, given away, taken back, given away, taken back, um, and eventually is raised in the orphanages uh, around Catholic nuns and priests and taken in by the Ryans, whose last name I have as, uh, I think, an 11-year-old boy. And then eventually becomes legally adopted later when he's a teenager. Then eventually, at the age of 18, joins the U.S. Army where he is first trained in hypnosis, beginning what would become his legacy, my career, in the family business. But before that, my dad had this rather extreme, I think we can say, situation that he was brought up in where you know, any kind of well, any kind of traditional family unit was completely absent, obviously. In, in the place of that, in a kind of surrogacy, he had priests, nuns, the Catholic Church, and all of the symbols therein, and the characters, and the stories, and of course the scripture. And, you know, I, I didn't really ask him too many stories about those experiences when he was around, because the assumption was they weren't nice stories. So out of respect for him, you know, we kind of just let him talk about it when he wanted to. And he wasn't, yeah, he was kind of withdrawn as a person, but he was also, he's a wonderful dad. I can't emphasize enough, you know, he and I had really had a beautiful relationship for most of his life and while we were together on the planet. So I'm aware, essentially, that I have this in my inherited ancestral DNA, you know, I carry this. As an adult man, you know, I've become more aware of this and ask myself, too, you know, as I reach ages that my dad was at where I was seeing him, you know, as when I was a kid uh, of wondering, you know, how he was feeling and you know, seeing parts of him and myself and what activates at the age of 40 that wasn't at the age of 33, that wasn't at the age of 25, of course. And, and you know, this is... Uh, the you know perfectly natural and rather mundane process of aging i'm simply talking about at this point but again coming back to my father's story specifically and ancestral memory i think that context is so important does actually become even more important at least to me as i get older as i as i live in my home you know which is my body i'll i'll finish the story kind of there and begin a conversation now, you know, with you, Jessica, and say, you know, and talk about, you know, ancestral memory, of course. And I would love to hear you share anything about your story, too, of course, that you would feel comfortable sharing that relates to this idea. And that, you know, of course, you know, we carry our family, we carry our experience, you know, this kind of uh, sense in this holistic view of ourselves that also, you know, that's just large enough to see the whole play and not just focus, of course, focusing on diet or wellness trends, going to the gym more often, all of those things being useful and important at different times. You know, I'm not disparaging them. I'm saying they're part of the picture and, you know, 
easy to get lost in too. So Jessica, what are your thoughts uh, on the story I just told? I think about my family mm. and my sort of ancestral imprint, if you will. Mm -hmm. And my great grandparents fled from Europe during the war and they were also immigrants. And they came through Ellis Island, they landed in Brooklyn, mm. and then they found property out in New Jersey. And mm -hmm. they literally just like built this community for themselves in the woods. And um, my great grandfather even named the street. Wow. And um, everybody sort of lived, you know, on the land in close proximity. And even I was born there. And um, we lived in a house at the bottom of the driveway of my <laughs> my grandparents' house. Wow. But at that time when I was born, both of my great grandmothers were still alive and everybody lived in the same house. And and that's the way they had had to have it. They mm -hmm. had to have family close. And um, it's interesting to think about how that journey that they made and what they were holding on to and sort of the fear that was really kind of embedded in, in into their experience right. coming um, to a new land, right. how that is passed on from generation to generation, but it's not realistic anymore. Like we're not in fear of these things any longer, but we're still replicating these behaviors or belief systems really. Um, and this is something that we can get into later when we talk about actually belongings that you hold on to in your home or in yeah. your life. Yeah. But um, for me, I remember growing up that everything was sentimental because everything was taken away from our family. And um, yeah. I'm Jewish, so that they were leaving um, during World War II. Mm -hmm. And so the emphasis became one of we are so grateful hold on to everything. Family is really important because, you know, they weren't coming over as a family. Like mm -hmm. they were coming over one by one, like as soon as they could get like papers or, you know, clearance to come over. And, um, it's very, it's hard to conceive, right? Because we're here now, our generation, and we didn't have to go through that. Yeah. But we are still, I feel, holding in ourselves this sort of trauma from our family. And there's ways to like, you know, honor it. But then I think there are also ways of letting go. So like at the top, this, when I was talking about taking care of the body, this is about a kind of a self-care that's more than going to get a massage, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is about taking care of your mental well-being and giving yourself nourishment and healing that our ancestors did not have access to. They were going through, you know, fight or flight responses and just trying to survive. So I think it's important to recognize that like that's where you came from mm -hmm. and also interesting to see how it's informing how you show up in the world now absolutely it's just so rich as subject matter everything we're talking about there's so many threads that are so crucial 
and plays such a significant role in the background, you know, that we, again, I, I wanted to start this conversation telling stories and a little bit about our family because, you know, it's always with us. And I know for myself, I'm really speaking for myself now, it's the first thing I'll delete when I'm just like feeling like, oh, I want to go to the gym and I can't get all, you know, whatever it is, like the drudgery of mm-hmm. the the treadmill of self-improvement and wellness that I reject, you know, wholly, knowing and acknowledging again we need tools, obviously. I'm a, a significant, I was going to use the word believer, but I think the better word ultimately is proponent or advocate, that we absolutely need tools. We need the right tool at the right time in the mm-hmm. right hands, you know, and that if one of those things is misaligned or wrong, then, then we can be led astray. Coming back to what we're talking about in terms of the body, and ancestral memory in particular. I, I want to hear a little bit more from you and, and talk about how that expresses itself. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, you know, the, the carrying of these memories in our relatively comfortable modern lives where, you know, we can shop from our phones and that information is at our fingertips. We have fewer and fewer reasons to leave our homes every day. And we're all pretty much embracing that, you know, in in various ways, a lot of us anyway. So that being the case, it's also not such distant history, of course, isn't it? As you and I told a little bit about our, our family's historical immigrant stories, we are saying this, of course, as we speak today against, and the last thing I want to do is make this a political conversation of any sort, but we're against the backdrop of an immigration crisis. So, as I mentioned, my grandmother, Elaine Massalam, who was felt needed to, for whatever reason, did give up my father for adoption as an infant more than once. My grandfather, Arthur, who's that's all we know about him is his first name, <laughs> um, is one of the biggest question marks left in the story of my paternal lineage anyway. And uh, what we do know about Arthur is he was a Jewish man. And he is is my Jewish lineage and my story. I can remember on a couple different occasions having the absolute honor and privilege of, of sitting next to, during dinner, Passover dinner, Holocaust survivors, and seeing the tattoos on their wrists mm-hmm. and realizing just how deeply and, you know, having that, again, that extraordinary honor made all of those Spielberg movies real. And, and my grandfather, on my, on my mom's side, I should say, was ultimate greatest generation, went to the Pacific Theater, fought in the war, married my grandmother on the steps of City Hall in 1943. And, and you know, it's, it, my grandfather on my mom's side, in many ways, was a Spielberg movie. But, you know, that lineage, ultimately, it wasn't so long ago. I think also, you know, one of the important things about our generation because we we knew those people, we we did have the the uh, the opportunity. Because I think about it fairly regularly. Past life regression mm-hmm. is a very cool way of staying in touch with history. <laughs> yeah, as he, as we were talking too, I I just feel I'm like, oh, I gotta gotta, you know kind of reel it in because I'm so tempted to start talking about past life regression. Yeah, but completely, I, completely. But I but we'll save that for another time. But yeah. um 
it is appropriate here. It, it is. And to say just a tiny bit, you know, it's something that I specialize in in my practice. It's something that I grew up around. And as the exercise suggests in its name, you're exploring what may or may not be past life memories that are stories from throughout our world's history, essentially, and other worlds for that matter sometimes. But it, it does give these windows and these looks inside to you know different possibilities, different times in history. And it, again, it just keeps one thinking about such a thing let's bring it back to the home and the body and you know being being ourselves now on you know a friday in brooklyn and looking forward to you know what we might do this weekend and who we might see and the work we'll do next week i feel like you're putting me into a trance right now <laughs> I, it, it happens naturally. I'm sorry. It just happens sometimes. <laughs> I can't help myself. One of the best pieces of wisdom that my teacher, Melissa Tears, ever gave me is a nugget. I can't remember. if I don't know if it's her words or if she's quoting somebody else, but you guide trance from trance. So it's a safe assumption that I'm usually hypnotized anyway. Mm -hmm. So I want to hear you, you know, kind of teach me now about what you're hearing me say, reflecting some back, and then, you know, how this translates into the home and how this translates into the mindset, to minimalism, to the our environments. I can start off by sharing some background about how I grew up in the 80s, 90s. <laughs> My family, they really love to consume and they love to keep the things that they consumed and for me, growing up in that house, I was a very organized child and I was obsessed with order. And um, we won't go into all of the, the reasons why I was more aligned with being an organized, clean person. But I will say that, you know, we lived in a relatively clean house. Sometimes it get messy because it was, you know, a full house with dogs and kids and my parents, they're still together. And I think that they really enjoyed life in terms of being able to enjoy the things that they purchased. And mm -hmm. we always lived in houses with pools and there was always like a lot of maintenance going on mm -hmm. in the homes that we lived in. My dad's an orthodontist. So like he would buy expensive toys. And I just noticed at a young age that the consumption was not always mindful. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit of this kind of mindlessness or childlike excitement for, oh my God, I earned this money. I'm providing for my family. I want to give them a lot. I want to buy this t-shirt in every color. I want to buy my oldest daughter a car, sure. you know, so he was very generous. My family was always very generous. And that comes from his parents, my grandparents. They were very generous. And I think, go ahead. I was just going to mention it you know, as, pardon my interruption, mm -hmm. but, you know, as we were saying before in the mid 20th century too, the whole idea you know it was really like the height of americana in the yes. 1950s and 60s and consumption and this was also it was like one of the most exciting times like the attitude i think it was starting you know i think we grew up with a different attitude that was there obviously in the 50s and the 60s but there was totally i'm really just agreeing there was totally this drive to consume that i think was still considered pretty righteous you know well, I mean, now I'm thinking I should have gone back to like my grandparents too, because after my great grandparents immigrated, 
my grandfather. So I'm a Yatrovsky. And then my grandmother's side is Mandel. Mm. And the Mandels, when they came to New York, started a printing press. Mm. And they were actually very successful. And when my grandmother, who is a Mandel, married my grandfather, who is a Yatrovsky, she was actually marrying down. Mm. So the family really didn't like or accept that for a very long time. And they would often like help her out financially a lot. I remember from, you know, what my dad would share with me is that my grandfather then became, he was in construction, he was in plumbing, and then he built one of the biggest plumbing empires in New Jersey. And, you know, so it's like he became successful and my father and my uncle wanted for nothing. And I was always told this story that like my dad didn't grow up with much. And that is not true at all. Like they were actually doing very well. And my father, when he was going to medical school, it was just such a different time. Like Mm -hmm. he was able to work with my grandfather in this plumbing business during the summer and then pay for medical school during the fall and winter. He had no debt Mm -hmm. coming out of school. So different time, (laughs) way different time. And, um, you know, he went to Columbia and they were living in New Jersey at the time. So like his mom dropped him off of the bus and he came into the city and then he took the train. And so everything was just perfect. Yeah. Very American, very, you know, the world is your oyster. And I remember hearing these stories and thinking how fortunate they were to be able to live a life like that and also just have family around them to support. Mm -hmm. So growing up, my experience, we moved away from New Jersey when I was very young. So I didn't actually get the experience my sister did. She's about 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And so she was around the family a lot and she got a lot of attention. She got, she got three of everything because everybody would buy her something. So like our experiences were very different. I maybe was like a minimalist from the get-go because I didn't get as much as my sister did and because I didn't know that that was available, Mm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I I kind of feel like that is a blessing. Mm. And it's no better or worse. It's just for me, I had a different experience to objects. If anything, I did take on that ancestral sentimentality about things. So if anything ever broke a toy or I ruined something, I would be like distraught over it. I thought I was going to get punished for it because I had such high expectations for the way I was like living this child life already, which is like chill. You know, I would I would anthropomorphize everything, which I know is a common thing with kids. It's going to feel bad if it's broken. You know, mm-hmm. like I don't want to upset. And, and, and no one's going to buy it again because I don't have a job. I'm like seven, you know? So that was my mentality. Whereas like my sister's mentality, and this is not to disparage her at all. If she broke something, one of the grandparents would buy her something. And my grandmother even had this saying she used to say, buy three of everything, one to keep, one to lose, and one to give away. So if that just gives you just a taste, just a little insight into how my dad's side of the family was living once they built this empire for themselves. I I do love that. I mean, you know, 
it's a nuanced conversation, of course, between consumption and waste and necessity and all of those ideas. But, you know, one, what is, what was it? One for yourself, one for somebody else and one, one to, to give keep, away? One to keep, one to lose okay. and one to give away. I mean, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. That's actually, it's gorgeous. And it has charity in it. I, I mean, yeah, I well, she was too. a complete a person who her whole life was service. She was a nurse. Yeah, so she really helped my father make it through medical school, along with my uncle, too, who's like a genius in his own right, who was also pre-med. Bless her. And, but they loved to just hoard. I would say my mm. grandparents were definitely hoarders, mm. especially when they got a little bit older and were sort of unhealthy. They would hold on to everything. And the way that that sort of was handed down to my father was everything is sentimental, everything is precious, keep everything. But the message of take care of everything, I don't Mm -hmm. think was necessarily communicated properly because you'd have a house full of stuff that was either unmanaged, broken, needing maintenance. So I think for me, I saw that as a kid and thought, I want something better for myself. Mm. I want to take care of the things that I have. And I feel like I, it's important to me to have some sense of like respect and um, honor in the way that I treat my belongings. So like this was a very, at a very young age, I was behaving like this. And I think even though I was very artistic and I was interested in anything having to do with art, my father recognize this my mother as well I mentioned to you that she always kept me involved in things that were art related because that sort of kept me engaged and but my father was really integral in sort of seeing the ways in which the aesthetic interests I have could be applied to his life So I was working in his practice at a very young age, organizing things for him, lining up brackets, um, building a skill set. I worked in the lab. He had a lab in his office and I I was, you know, bending appliances, man. I I know it's a different scenario, but I was in my dad's practice tinkering, you know, Mm -hmm. and as a a child, you're just absorbing information there and taking on little habits unconsciously and all that sort of stuff. And my sister now, she goes, dad never let me in the back office. I I was always up front on the phone, you know, being an administrative Hmm. type person. And I'm like, well, yeah, she's very, she's like an Aquarius, you know, she's like very bubbly and like friendly. And And what's your sun sign? I'm Gemini, but I'm Libra rising and I feel very much more like a Libra. Well, I should confess to our listeners, I'm an Aquarius. So we're just a couple of air signs here. Well, what's your rising? We do. Uh, I am a Capricorn rising with a Sagittarius moon. You're sensitive. I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've established that. (laughs) Yeah, I am. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty well expressed through my astrology. I mean, obviously, astrology is a big subject that we could talk about. The point of view on the subject is valid as far as I'm concerned. And I represent my astrological chart pretty pretty accurately with my <laughs> Aquarius sun, Sagittarius moon, and Cap rising. I feel Libra because I want balance. I want justice. I want fairness. There you go. And thinking about how I was raised, they allowed me to be like that. But my dad put me to work, you there know, you with, with the skill set. So, you know, I don't know if we... This is so funny, Jess, because, of course... 
Jessica knows my wife, you know, my wife, Sarah, mm-hmm. Sarah, Libra's son, whose mm-hmm. father was a dentist, is a dentist. My father-in-law, absolutely wonderful man. I love him with all my heart. Um, yeah, but interesting, you know, Libra, I've, I've had wonderful, wonderful relationships with Librans all my life. I'm fond of all the air signs myself. I go back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> Good days and bad days. It can be, I mean, we need to be tethered to something, no doubt. Yeah. But I think, you know, regardless, it's nice to have an upbringing where they sort of see your strong suits and they put you to work. Yes. So I have a question for you. Pulling all of that through. Mm -hmm. Now today, you are living here in Brooklyn as an artist, as a professional. Tell us about how the story that you just told me has pulled through to the habits, your day-to-day in your own home, the things you surround yourself, also the food that you have in your kitchen and that mm-hmm. you keep in your refrigerator and in your home, please. Well, hmm. How do I start with that? Mm. My family was relatively into any type of health trend or health mm-hmm. craze. Mm-hmm. And I think at an early age, because my grandparents died so young, mm-hmm. I was kind of like, not consciously, but subconsciously just aware of health and sure. and also spirituality. I got interested in the Kabbalah when I was very young. I was like still in wow. high school. It was in your family, in the home? Mm-hmm. But we didn't study it together. I mean, we were, I call, you know, Christmas tree Jews. Like cool. we had a Christmas tree and we celebrated all the holidays. And so I was very aware of um, the, the different sort nice. of you know, um, my, ways of worship. Right on. Yeah. My dad wore stars of David and we celebrated and he's not, Christ- and he's not Jewish at all. <laughs> and it was like another thing we didn't question. It was just like, Oh, he's a, a student of all religions, mm-hmm. but he may have known that his father was Jewish and we didn't realize that he knew that this is something else. That Your dad is a mystery complex figure. <laughs> Please continue. So we didn't worship a lot. We weren't like super religious, but like me and my dad were always very interested in spirituality. So the older I got, we would do yoga type things together. We met a Buddhist monk together once when I was Mm. having anxiety. And so he's always along for the spiritual ride. He's a very philosophical dude. Nice. So like that was nice to kind of have that interaction with him. But You know, we were also always interested in health, being like a medical family as well. Between my dad and my sister, they were always researching like, what's the healthiest thing to consume? What kind of exercise can we do for this or that for optimal health? We would often be going through one trend or another constantly. But, you know, that became its own consumption at a certain point. Of course. Um, But how that manifested in my adult life I was always interested in fitness. I think it started with fitness and then later on it moved into, oh, let's eat healthy. And I remember like when Whole Foods finally popped up. I don't know. Was that like the 90s? Like, I don't know when Whole Foods came about, but. Yeah, they did just pop up on the scene. At yeah. Some point. I, I think it was in the last uh well between 2000 and 2010 but of course i have no idea i'm just basing that on what i when i noticed yeah i just remember like my sister and i were shopping at places looking for like organic meat and organic vegetables and things that didn't have antibiotics in it and this was i was like 16 15 or 16 when i started getting into this 
I started getting into like colonics and Reiki at like 16, 17. Sure. So it's interesting to sort of have that. Yeah. At a very young age. Truly. And, you know, coming back to the the treadmill of, of wellness trends that we talk about sometimes that I, I think of personally and professionally as useful sometimes and others simply not. You know, I mean, it depends on what one needs in a moment. So coming back to our discussion around minimalism and mindset and food in particular, I would love to hear the story of how you became a vegan. Okay. <laughs> um, Big story. So kind of in line with what I slightly mentioned earlier about spirituality, mm. um, I had a moment many, many years ago. I mean, I've been vegan now for 12 years, and I was doing a juice cleanse at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I've never been vegetarian. I've always been a meat eater, not like a heavy meat eater, but, you know, I liked chicken and the occasional burgers and, mm -hmm. you know, big cheese eater as a kid. Like what kid isn't? An American diet. Mm -hmm. And I just remember I decided to do a cleanse. It was a very unhealthy cleanse. I would not recommend doing mm -hmm. cleanses like these nowadays. Um, Unhealthy because it was extreme? It was an extreme cleanse and it was a weight loss cleanse. I don't do those anymore because I want to feel good. I don't want to deprive my body. Mm -hmm. So I remember um, I was doing this cleanse and for anybody out there who's done a cleanse that's a very intense one, you can hallucinate. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not always good experiences. And sometimes you'll get over that third, fourth or fifth day and then you'll start to feel really good. And while that's great, um, later on in life, I realized that um, raw juice cleanses are really bad for me because it's bad for my doshas, which mm. will probably be another episode when mm -hmm. we talk about Ayurveda and, you know, mm -hmm. Vedic principles and such. Yes. But I was just feeling really ungrounded and anxious when I was doing this cleanse. And at the same time, because the experience was so extreme, I felt like I was uh, hallucinating and feeling like really high. And I, I had this sense of lightness at a certain point that to me felt I questioned it. I was like, wow, I feel so light. This feels so wonderful. Why is that? And I swear to you, I got some type of message that said, and it wasn't from me. It felt like some other entity was giving me this information that, mm. well, you're not ingesting suffering. Mm. And I was like, pardon? Excuse me. Hello? Mm. Hello, God? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Who's talking to me? Who's saying this? Because I have never been an animal activist or somebody who is vegetarian, like I said, or you know, anti-animal eating. And so I thought, oh, that's really strange. Even my friends group, they weren't these type of like, you know, activists. So I thought, oh, <laughs> I was really going crazy on this cleanse, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I just, you know, kind of wrote that sort of insight off. Mm. And when I got off of the cleanse, you know, as you do, you start to incorporate other foods back into your diet until mm -hmm. you can finally start to incorporate meat and dairy again. 
And once I did that, I got to the meat and dairy part. I couldn't eat it. It was so upsetting to me, like physically and mentally and emotionally. And I didn't know why, because I had never had this experience before. And I had no idea what I was going to do now because my diet consisted of a lot of these things that I was now repulsed by. I had no friends to ask questions about. I knew no Mm. vegetarians. And I certainly didn't know what the hell veganism was. Mm. I just knew for myself that I did not want to eat meat and I didn't want to consume dairy. Mm -hmm. So to me, in my mind, I was like, I have a limited diet. What can I eat now? So that kind of led me down this path of finding a few books and reading about plant-based diets and what I could eat. And literally the next day, and I wouldn't advocate for this now, I just threw everything out. I threw every meat or dairy product out of my house and I started from scratch. That's a good way to clean the slate. Sometimes, sometimes, as you say, you know, it's maybe not suggested often. but Yeah, it's not sustainable. No, <laughs> Certainly it's not. not. Sustainable. I wouldn't do that today. Yeah. Um, but I just was like, I need to figure out what I'm going to do now with my diet. And it's interesting because... I know that there are a lot of programs out there or coaches even and a lot of literature that just suggest this kind of cleaning everything out, but that's not actually how you learn and make an actual lifestyle change. So for me, it was a lot of Mm self-education. So I started with bringing vegetables into my diet, grains, all of these things, vegetables that I'd never even heard of. Did you start with recipes? Did you? Yeah, I actually, I found The Kind Diet, which is that book Hmm. by Alicia Silverstone. She had some wonderful recipes in there. Right on. But I am a pretty plain eater. So I was just like, just give me some rice and vegetables. And then I started to kind of like experiment. Cool. And I was fine in Brooklyn at the time. So there was an actual vegan movement. I had to go into Williamsburg mostly, sure. but you know, it was there for me. Thank and I, goodness it's there for you. So it started out with like a lot of vegan comfort food. And then I started to get into, well, oh, organic. Hmm. Wait, I shouldn't be eating vegetables with pesticides in it. And I shouldn't be eating things that are GMO. And so then that was like another level of education yeah. and another level of education. And then it started to go into what am I putting on my body? What am I washing my dishes with? What am I washing my laundry with? I just became so sensitive to anything that I was being exposed to. Now, when I work with a client or if a friend asks me advice, I do not have judgment towards their lifestyle because I think that if they were to just all of a sudden adopt what I do onto their life, they're never going to stick with it. Like it takes this process of learning for yourself, educating yourself, and then like slowly incorporating it. And it's a lifelong process and it's really fun and it's exciting. You know, I'm always learning about a new supplement that I can integrate or something I could try. Like right now I'm really getting into cryotherapy. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's another thing too. Although I'm a minimalist, I don't like to just buy and try everything when it's the right moment and it comes into my orbit i'll check it out 
So I think it's this minimalist approach, but also an approach where I feel that I'm giving my body what I need. I'm educating. I'm learning. My father is a great resource. My sister's a great resource. We're constantly swapping information about supplements and in, in different ways of enhancing nutrition. So I think that now what I'm interested in moving forward, I have some friends and designers that are into the sustainability movement. So that's a new avenue for me. And mm-hmm. I'm learning a lot about that. But I think for me, it started with the diet. And then when years later, when I started to learn about Kanmari and minimalism, I'm like, oh, this makes so much sense because like we're thinking about how we're treating our home, our home body, yeah, right? Our yeah. body. Yeah. And then we see, okay, well, this is how we've treated our body. Now we're putting good things in it. We're sure. fueling it. We're feeling good. It, it makes so much sense. It's just, it's such a natural leap from mm-hmm. where you describe yourself as already being there in your mindset around food, you know, to minimalism in your space and in your mm-hmm. mindset and in your life and in your home. And I think it should be gradual and self-authored. Mm. I always tell my clients, this process is self-authored. This is the life that you want to live and you should approach it with grace and enthusiasm in the way that you see fit. So I'm just there to guide and maybe give some tips. And sometimes I have a cool idea (laughs) and they can incorporate it. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. ultimately, it's just to lead them towards their own research. Sometimes people come back and they give me advice. And I'm like, this is what it's about. It's about a community of people. Learning from each other. Yeah. And sharing information and evolving, expanding. So for me, how that moved into my actual living space, it was a no-brainer. It's like, I'm taking care of my body, my temple. Now let's get this sanctuary on board and like really create it as a space that's gonna support my mental and physical and emotional well-being. That's beautiful. As a hypnotherapist, I'm acutely aware of how complex and complicated food often is as a subject for everybody rather naturally. Uh, It's utterly common for people to come into my office with all kinds of different issues, challenges, problems around food, various language about, you know, just our habitual relationships and of course, cravings and impulses and urges. And and I was speaking with a psychiatrist friend of mine the other day, and, and we were speaking together about this. And he was mentioning, we were both, we were like, you know, more than any other thing, more than sleep, more than sex, more than these other fundamental primal human experiences that each of us will have in our own way. Food is just so ubiquitous. We celebrate with it. We mourn with it. We do it by ourselves. We do it in company. It's social. It's private. It's pleasure. It's necessity. It's it's so deep, uh, the subconscious and unconscious associations. So to hear your story, one of the things that's so cool about it is that you had this clear message, you know, hearing you talk about that. I still don't know who said that to me. Well, it sounds like such a... (laughs) (laughs) It was Seth. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. It, which it could have been. Um, I don't know either, of course, but I do think it's interesting to consider again in the context of the ancestral memories that we've been speaking about and that, you know, what a gift that insight was just to think of how many different things were set in motion in your life over time by that single awareness that you were able to listen to. Mm-hmm. It's, it's rather extraordinary. But I rejected it at first. Go on. So right on. isn't that interesting about the human mind and hey, the body? Man, Joseph Campbell would say the hero does at least for a couple moments before accepting ultimately what the way is going to be. There you go. Yeah. So it's yeah. like I hear a message. I rejected it. I went back. I tried to eat a chicken nugget and my body was like, ew, you do not want this chicken nugget. And I tried it a few times. I literally just tried to go back and eat meat and I couldn't. And now I have a whole different experience with dairy, which is a uh, we won't go into this um, <laughs> because I, I feel more, you know, dairy avoiding dairy in the dairy industry is a feminist activist choice and i think that karmically and energetically consuming those products just feel wrong Mm. for me Mm -hmm. but i'm also very compassionate and tolerant and accepting that this is the world that we live in and Perhaps things can just end or stop, but like I'm not going to live my life in an angry place about it. I'm just going to try to make better choices. And even, you know, like I don't feel one way or another about people who are not plant-based or not vegan. I think that if we can all do something towards the betterment of the world, of society, of their community, like that's wonderful. You know, like it's not about shaming, it's about education and it's about expansion. So however you can sort of get there, I'm totally supportive of it and very much in line with how you speak about meeting people where they are. And I think like that can be extended to yourself too. Like if you're trying to make a change, you want to feel better, you don't know how, you're struggling, maybe you're struggling with your weight, meet yourself where you are too. Well said, beautifully said. Uh, Coming back to the complexity of this issue for most people. And again, you know, the habits around food that start early in life, what comforts us as a child, you know, and how we carry those associations again, naturally into adulthood and and later in life. And to mince coffee cakes. There you go. There you go. (laughs) I mean, my family grew up eating those like, sure. I mean, the Goes raspberry too. Danish, I can like that, the, the Entenmann's raspberry Danish box is iconic in my own mind, just mm-hmm. from resting on my counter mm-hmm. <laughs> in my kitchen growing up basically once a week. I feel like it's very East Coast, too. Probably. I also grew up in New Jersey, mm-hmm. full context. Uh, I grew up in Randolph, a lovely little town, gorgeous place to grow up in the 1980s. All that said, environment. Again, coming back to the body, where we live, what we surround ourselves with, what we choose to, and then what we don't choose to, but it's just there. A lot of what we're talking about, and again, you know, the gift of the clarity of your feelings and your direction of this, I don't want this in my body. I'm reminded uh, much of this hypothetical, but also some of it, you know, probably people that we do know that live in places where they don't have options and, and that 
only have in their environment what they have in their environment, you know. And of course, I'm also reminded too, as we're talking about our, our grandparents and past generations, the very same military industrialized complex that made this beautiful food machine that, mm -hmm. you know, fed the country in, in the 1950s and 60s that was so effective and, you know, so built into the American dream and what we could provide for our families at the time is precisely, or at least part of what we're now kind of trying to work outside of, you know, to find organic food and local food and organic yeah. food and to, you know, know the vegetable that we're eating, its astrological sign and where it came that from. That is so cool. <laughs> we were talking about a farm upstate before we started recording where uh, I've held some retreats and wonderful place that I've worked with that their farm, they they know, of course, where they are in the astrological calendar and they give their vegetables signs essentially and do their charts as they're pulling their vegetables, which again is uh, some next level. I've been on a retreat where, um, you know, a transcendental meditation retreat and all of that food that we're eating is blessed by Yodishas and it's amazing. Yeah. The food is incredible. Yeah. So energy... <laughs> is fucking real <laughs> well yeah it's a different experience eating food that's been loved mm -hmm. I, you know in any possible way i i do believe you know i really I believe that in full disclosure i am currently in a carnivorous phase i have been vegetarian many times in my life i have been pescatarian many times in my life i've never gone particularly vegan my mom has a gluten allergy that she is listening to and she's in her 70s and doesn't take a single medication and I also suspect I also have the same gluten allergy and at some point we'll listen to that um well you just said yet. listening and I think yeah. like that is so intelligent yeah, it, it, it to say that because I've had many bouts of you know um sickness or what have you uh over the course of the past few years and I see an acupuncturist and she was telling me you know, Jessica, I think if you're not feeling better after X, Y, and Z, I'm going to recommend that you drink bone broth. Mm. And you know what I said to her? I'll do it. Yeah. Because I think personally that more than just kind of like sticking to the ideologies of like what vegan means, I think it's important to listen to the body yeah. if you feel like you need something you should appease that part of yourself. But, you know, and, and this can extend on to if you need some comfort food, you know, like why are we always punishing ourselves? Like maybe sometimes you need like a whole pint of ice cream and that feels really good and your body needs to feel comforted and not deprived. So like I'm all for intuitive eating, intuitive living. And that's kind of like a complicated thing because then we think about like our body image and how that's tied to so much shame if you like eat a certain way. Um, I read this New York Times article, which I'll send to you and maybe we can like link it in this be because I think it was um, pretty interesting to hear how this writer was talking about our relationship to wellness and diet, like the wellness industry and the diet industry. Um, but not to get too far off of that point being is that I think that, you know, your mom, she's in her seventies now, you said yep. she's living mindfully because she's an incredible woman. She's just being the way she needs to be. She's mm -hmm. eating the way she feels. So I think we're our 
own best guide. All in all, I just, I'm super into this idea of the inner guide, whether it's some weird voice telling you <laughs> like that you need to become vegan mm -hmm. or whether it's saying like, yeah, you know, in, enjoy yourself, enjoy that, you know, omelet or what have you. And let food be thy medicine. Right? Yeah. You know, I, we haven't explicitly called that out just yet, but behind all of this, there is, of course, a, a Hippocratic awareness of let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food, ultimately, that we have that option. And, you know, that concept, I don't think I was introduced to until I was in my 20s, and I probably didn't take it seriously until I was in my 30s. But of course, it is true. And, you know, the food, I, the food that I was raised with was not medicine, right? You know, did you have like an Americana? Very much so, very much so. And I don't, diet. yeah, and I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because it, it again, systems, uh, the, the American supermarket is a miracle, <laughs> you know? Um, just conjuring the image of the supermarket right now just uh, excites me. It's a, you know, and, to go to travel to countries that do not live with these kinds of things in our areas is, you know, a, a very important lesson in understanding the amount of access and privilege that we have. You know, living in New York, I don't think I could ever leave this city because I'm so spoiled by the food, you know, and what you mentioned even before about having vegan options around you at this crucial time for you. To imagine a life if you had not had that, you're like, what would have happened? I you probably would have been know. early onset diabetic. You know, you're raised a certain way on this like wholesome American diet, which what we, you know, would refer to like as a wholesome diet, like mm. mac and cheese and, you know, and meatloaf. It's amazing to me because we're all raised on this. But as adults, you know, we really do require different things. It's surprising to me, too, that everyone's attached to their phones now and there's so much education out there and i'm like what ads is that person getting more awareness than there has ever been <laughs> it's like i'm getting ads to like yeah and misinformation you know, wait. i mean I, I i hear you and it's a question for both of us you know that is it useful information or is it noise and mm -hmm. how do we know the difference when is which there was a documentary I watched a long time which? ago. Yeah. I can't remember which one it was because there's so many of them. Some of them are better than others. But I remember this guy or woman, they were holding two pills. One was like a pharmaceutical pill and the other was like a, a supplement. Oh, a supplement. And he was making this analogy of, you know, it's interesting that as humans, as Americans, we look at this pill, the pharmaceutical pill, as the cure, and we completely dismiss the supplement as actual healing and ability to transform health. And that really stuck with me because like I even still have that kind of stigma sure. with supplements. I'm like, is this really working or is this like packaged really cute and I just want to put this powder in my drink? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it works. So it's like we have to rely on our community is to know that like we're getting the right nutrients. We're getting actual minerals that are going to be properly absorbed into our body. And also something more recent that I've been getting really into is overuse of antibiotics and how it's like affecting all of our systems. So now I really try like I, I've almost been antibiotic free for like two years, but it takes a lot of 
courage to be able to try to do that because also we're we're a scared society. We don't want to get an infection. Oh, yeah. We don't want to get sick. Oh, we have a cough. Uh, uh. Well, the we advertising take antibiotic. too, yeah. right? The pharmaceutical advertising complex. Um, I again, I, I, there's a, a correct measure here because we need information and mm-hmm. we need to receive the information somehow. But there's also reasons that other countries simply make illegal. Yeah. The advertising of what is essentially pharmaceutical medicine, you know, the pills that, you know, and I say this, we are saying this knowing there's an opioid crisis happening right now ravaging this nation. So, yeah, there's a, I don't know, man, there's a sense of responsibility that uh, may or may not be present the way a lot of the messaging and the stories being created today. But I, I, simplifying this and coming back to the here, the now, our homes, our bodies, I, I'd love to hear you speak about how this relates to you for now as you were talking too about being that little girl, organizing your dad's office. How is this now for you as you look around your home and how there are no piles? And if there is something placed, mm-hmm. it's because it's intentional. It's because it's beautiful. It's because it's supposed to be seen. You know, so how does how does this communicate to your home, to visual space? And also, <laughs> I'm giving you a big question here, <laughs> but the negative space too, what we don't see, you know, like air and light and time and space, the name of this poem, this Bukowski poem that is all about those subjects and having enough of those elements to work in and live in and, you know, not having piles of clutter around us visually or internally in our minds and our thoughts. You're not aware of what's inside my drawers as we sit in my foyer. Sounds very, very (laughs) ominous. Go on. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there are things that in my mind still need organizing or still Mm. need, you know, rearranging. Mm. But I think for me, what I've acknowledged and also in the work that we've done together is there are concrete triggers for me. Yeah. Triggers hide in plain sight. mm -hmm. And sometimes they're actual concrete objects. And I love aesthetic living. I love beauty. I am an artist. I create beauty for other people. And... So why wouldn't I give that to myself, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's such a source of like relaxation, ease, pleasure. So I think for me, like just kind of this is a very basic thing, but Mm. I wanted to make every corner of my space one that if I were sitting anywhere or laying anywhere, standing anywhere, whatever is in my field of vision is not going to be disruptive, Mm -hmm. uh, upsetting or triggering. And adding on to that principle. It's going to make me maybe even super just happy and satisfied. So like I've collected a lot of things over the years that are, you know, artwork by artists that I love, um, objects that I purchased Mm -hmm. overseas that just remind me of something very beautiful and nostalgic, um, colors that evoke those feelings, um, you know, what always yeah. strikes me about what we're talking about too, which I notice present in your home as we're sitting here in your home recording this today, is that you know the difference between one thing on a countertop and three things. Yeah. That to have one beautiful object, you can't ignore 
its beauty. It becomes the focal point in the scene. And this, I mean, this corresponds cognitively. The moment that we introduce more elements into the scene, the moment there's three, the moment there's five or seven, the brain is literally working harder to identify and categorize and understand yeah. these images and these objects and which ones we like and which ones we don't. And really doing this in relationship to each other as well, consciously and unconsciously. So then, and again, you know, we can think of the, about this too in, in city living, the amount of visual information that's in front of us at any given time takes a lot of cognitive energy to process mm -hmm. everything in our field. And it really, we can't. So, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I notice and appreciate in your space and just the, um, the essence and the cleanliness of one beautiful thing that becomes impossible to ignore. Sometimes I want to add more things to the space. And as sure. soon as I do that, it just feels like, ah, <laughs> ruining the balance. It's too much. Mm -hmm. I don't feel peaceful and calm. But this is something that I have established over years of just trying things out, seeing what feels right, finding my happy medium of, you know, I, I want to show these stones off or I want to put these flowers here, but then I don't want a whole surface full of things. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to live in my space. I think that that's the prime objective of me transforming my space mm -hmm. and also like just staying on top of it, like making sure that the piles don't start to pile up and the drawers start overflowing. As soon as that happens, I start to feel agitated. So it's really interesting how those things for me have always been connected. Chaos and disorder really upset me. I think that has a lot to do with my issues with anxiety too, because things were always kind of uh, chaotic in my home and um, not because there wasn't like routine, right? I had a routine growing up and I even gave myself routine growing up as well because I was a weirdo. <laughs> but I, I have to share this because it's, it is funny to me now. Growing up, my father, we would always be organizing and reorganizing the house, but we never really decluttered. We were just moving stuff from one side of the house to the other side of the house and everything was always in boxes. And my dad was always like, building new shelving in the garage to house the boxes. And like we had a rec room that was just full of boxes and there were literally boxes just like lined up against a wall. And then he just like put a sheet over the boxes. Mm -hmm. And this upset me through adulthood to the point where I cannot have a cardboard box in my house without a purpose. This box is going to be temporary if it's in the house. Like, it's got to go. I remember it would be this inside joke in my family, especially when I moved away from home, where they would, like, write me a birthday card or, you know, a, a note or something like that that would say, Jess, sorry you're missing Father's Day. We really need to help you to help clean out the garage. We're really going to miss your help because I was good at organizing. But for me, it was, like, traumatic. Because mm. I spent all these weekends with these fucking boxes oh, and we were never really like doing anything about them other than yeah. just moving them around. And yeah. I like couldn't stand it. So like now I feel that my sensitivity to it 
it's a good thing because I'm never going to be the person with like accumulated boxes in my house. And I'm never also going to like backslide and be like, oh, I'm going to all of a sudden have these boxes and go into my nature because like that's not my nature. That was the nature of my family. So like I can clearly see that that's not my shit. And there's the inherited memories mm-hmm. you know, that we were speaking about at the beginning. So but, but w- one thing I wanted to please, add please, to that yes. is that now I have a sense of humor about it. And right. now since I've been doing, you know, work in people's homes, I've actually developed deep compassion for my family and the way they yeah, live and why yeah. they hold on to these things. We need this. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so I remember uh, just a few months ago, my mother was giving me a house tour and my dad still has these boxes. He has, you know, record patient records and he's like retired. So it's like, why do you have these anymore, dad? Like, this is fucking ridiculous, but it's kind of out of control. So my mom, she's giving me this tour. Right. And I was like, wow, they kind of really, they, they're minimal. They're, they're minimizing things. This is nice. Cause they also like to tell me how proud they are of themselves cause they're reducing. Mm-hmm. And I'm always very like encouraging. Mm-hmm. So she's giving me this tour on FaceTime and then she opens this door and she just kind of like cracks it and then she closes it really quickly. I was like, whoa, 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 what's what's in there? So she opens the door. It's literally from ceiling to floor. Boxes of patient files. And I was triggered. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) there it is. I knew it wasn't. I knew that it was going to be there somewhere. Because they would have had to have some kind of other thing happen for that to be gone. Moving from the analog age into the digital age with these records, especially medical records. I actually know more than a couple, uh, you know, doctors and physicians and orthodontists and dentists with, you know, multi-year or decades long practices that uh, I, I don't know where to draw the line between habitual just you know hanging on to what we no longer need or the the storing the ethical and responsible storing of medical records i don't know of course and then of course moving that all to digital and everything i i think in their case it's past the um statute and i would defer to you as the expert Mm -hmm. on that situation for sure so last question on this subject digital minimalism Mm -hmm. how does this apply to your desktop and your computer how does this apply to your phone in your interaction with devices this is something that i'm still working on i think moving target right this is difficult too because i am a photographer Mm -hmm. so i'm taking a lot of pictures i don't like to edit in camera because i feel like like to give you an example a photograph i would take hundreds of photos of somebody and um Going back years later, I would look at the contact sheets and see something I didn't see. So mm. if I had deleted that, I might have been disappointed. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you can play devil's advocate and say, well, did you need that photo? If you don't know it existed, does it matter? Mm. But I think for me, when I'm thinking about my digital archive, like on my phone specifically and on emails, that's something that I was trying to manage really tightly. And I noticed that it was just giving me a lot of anxiety. Hmm. So I started just adopting the principle of unsubscribe from everything. I use something called unroll me Mm -hmm. and it just captures everything into one email. There you go. Unsubscribe from everything else. And then I just delete things. Yeah. And 
don't pay attention to mostly everything else. I flag stuff that I have to return emails right about. Yeah. And that makes me feel like a little bit better. But still, if I start to think about like what's on my hard drives, like I've gone through so many iterations of sure. hard drive organization. And I'm sure you know this too, because you, you know, work digitally as well. Yep. That backing up and organizing is a, an animal. Oh. <laughs> and I think that. And you're, again, you're a filmmaker, you're a photographer, just with appreciation. Like I think more than anybody, you guys have huge files. Yes. You have. And they keep accumulating. Ginormous, you know, files and folders of footage and B-roll and all kinds of stuff. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I myself am not a filmmaker and I have enough of a sense to know what goes into it. And it is, it's, it's, uh, its own kind of full-time job just keeping things organized, especially again, when you're working for years as you have. Well, I take less pictures now. And if you want to talk about intentionality, mm. I don't pick my phone up or my camera up mindlessly. Mm. Like there is intention behind it because also I don't want to go back and have to fucking edit. Sure. It's like there's too much then there's like too many options. And mm -hmm. like you took 15 selfies of yourself and like maybe today you like the way that looks and tomorrow you won't. So it's like, I just try to limit the amount of the actual doing of something. So I think that's also one of the reasons why in my personal work, I still gravitate towards shooting on film as mm -hmm. opposed to digitally, even though a lot of people, I mean, I have digital cameras and I do shoot on them mostly for commercial projects, but I still love my medium format camera, it's like I only have like 16 shots. Hmm. So that makes me be very much more intentional and approach mm -hmm. it how I would as my background being a painter. You know, you set the scene up and you put a lot of thought behind just the composition instead of like, oh, I'm just going to shoot through this. That's very mindful. It's very like fashion photography, right? Mm -hmm. Like how you're just like click, 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 click. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just feels like over consuming too. And then you're just like left with such a workload for yourself. So I try to minimize that. But then if we're talking about like my filmmaking practice, there's this idea of like wanting to make sure we get coverage of everything, right. like everything gets covered. Yeah, yeah. So there's that kind of like anxiety and paranoia around that. But even that, it's like it took a step back. I'm like, less is more. Let me just capture this you know, as much as I can in this sort of gentle process without exerting myself or the team, you know, I'm a perfectionist and I know that. So I think for me, it's about just loosening my grip a little bit and knowing that there will be some gold in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. Like, I really do believe that. So coming to uh, the beginning of the end here with this episode, I, I wanted to reference again this poem by Bukowski, Air, Light, Time, and Space. I didn't bring it with me because I don't and didn't really want to read it necessarily on the episode. But please do. If anybody would like to look it up, just Google it. It is a beautiful poem, and it correlates deeply to our conversation today. In the poem, he's talking about, he mentions anyway, as I recall, that if one is in any way wanting to or feeling like they are are going to listen to a, a part of themselves that's going to tell them not to be creative or not to take a step forward or not to make a move to be heard or start the project that's in the back of their minds or make the change that they want to make a change. 
any excuse. It'll be, you know, well, there's not enough air in the room. There's not enough light coming in. I need better lighting. You know, I don't have enough time today or, or the space just isn't right, you know, and that we'll let those things stop ourselves. In fact, you know, it, it won't be much of a trouble. Some of us will. Some of us will sometimes. And that there's always, if you're really going to do your thing, you being a, a perfect example, Jessica, even the way that you told the story about getting that impulse of yourself to no longer eat suffering that you were able to listen to. It didn't matter how much air, light, or time, or space there was. That was simply the way that reality was now. And the world was going to be arranged in such a way that would correspond to Mm -hmm. that new order. It started internally for you and that lived internally for you. It still does. So, you know, I I love this poem um, and this idea and the context of this conversation. So again, we're talking about really... Actually, we've spoken today about a generations-long process of how much air do we need, how much light, how much time, and how much space as children, as parents, as families, as generations. Um, So, yeah, thank you very much for sharing those parts of your story today. I appreciate that. I learned a lot about you. I learned a lot about you, too. I I do feel like we're sort of hitting like it's like a ping pong <laughs> or a, a pinball no. so i, I apologize no, to please. anybody if they feel like we're kind of going all over the place i but. apologize as well it is it is a tangential conversation to be sure but you know again it ties in for all of us this idea of ancestral memory and the way that we carry the past and how we are mapping universal. it yeah. too like i often find myself putting together the past and feeling better about it, no longer taking these negative aspects that I've sort of latched onto and rewriting them, mm-hmm. you know, in ways that make more sense to me. Not only that are all more rational, but that are just kind of like in honor mm-hmm. and gratitude of our families and our ancestors. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Visit MindSpaceMinimal.com and email us at MindSpaceMinimal at gmail.com. That's M-I-N-D-S-P-A-C-E-M-I-N-I-M-A-L.com. Keep it minimal and keep it moving. Thanks again for listening.